Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You walk really fast. I mean, you walk, I'm like sweating walking like Really? You. Okay. I should be in New York. Happy, happy new year. This is Evelyn, and you're listening to Reppin. Thank you for being here. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season with your family and that you're ready for a new lineup of guests that I have coming up for you this year. Right now, I'm going to kick off 2023 with a very special show. We met my next guest about a year or so ago on Reppin when she shared how she left a secure, lucrative career in corporate finance in pursuit of her dreams to be an actress. With no projects in place, she packed up her car, fought through her fears, wrestled with uncertainty, and took a huge leap of faith. Her hard work and gamble paid off because it led her to roles on family law, street legal, the crossing, and most notably, she is the lethal and now redeemed assassin Jalan on the CW's Kung Fu. On her second guest appearance here, we delved even deeper. She talked about the expectations that we all have to face and shared how she managed her own. Today, we pick up right where we left off as she lets us in on the changes she's experienced since she was in the car to where she is today. If you think we went deep in previous conversations, get ready because this one coming up is the most contemplative and personal conversation we've had on the show. And for all of you Kung Fu fans, you're in for a special treat because this is going to be a two-parter. You heard that right. This is the first of two. Back by popular demand, I'm thrilled to welcome back the incomparable Yvonne Chapman. Yvonne, thank you so much for coming on. It is so great to see you as always. How you are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm getting over a cold. So I apologize to people listening. It probably sounds like I'm a little bit stuffed up. But anyway, that is why. <laughs> well, you look wonderful. And it is really great to see you. So listen, I need to start the show just by saying, look, I don't talk a lot about what I do beyond this podcast, but I have been a working television producer for a long time. And I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of notable people who are in the public eye. A lot of them are actors with huge fan bases. And not everyone is as genuine <laughs> or, you know, who they seem to be or you want them to be. And I'd want the audiences to know that I've gotten to know Yvonne just a little bit. And it's really important that the audiences know that Yvonne is every bit as thoughtful, 
grounded, kind, and gracious as you would hope she would be if you get to meet her. And, you know, they say never meet your heroes. But I think in this particular case, if she is someone you admire and support, and if you get the opportunity to meet Yvonne, she is every bit the person that you would hope she would be and so much more. And she's the real deal. So for all the audiences, I want you guys to know that your love, your support, and your respect for Yvonne is well-placed with someone who is extremely deserving. So... Having said that, thank you for being back on the oh show. Oh my gosh. Well, thank and you. Congratulations on a great season three. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. And I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt, but I'm just saying that for those listening as well, please let me say the same to you. Of, there's a reason why I'm coming on here for a third time is because I absolutely love talking to you and your podcast is phenomenal. So thanks again for having me. Oh my God, are you kidding? I thought it was me begging you and your reps and throwing myself at no. your feet. But seriously, thank you so much. First of all, season three has been great. The stunts are fantastic. The trajectory for Jalan's character has been one of the most interesting and fun things to watch. I think she's had the most character development. And I haven't been shy about saying this, both as an audience who follows the series, as well as a producer. Jalan, for me, is like my favorite character because there has been a huge trajectory and her story has deepened and she went from this like crazy homicidal, you know, assassin to someone who has been on a path of redemption, you know, before she was very precise and knew who she was and what she wanted to do. And now she's kind of in this weird place where it's a new chapter for her in her life. She's got to figure out new ways of being both as a person and sort of in life in general. Movies have two hours. You've had three seasons to sort of really have the space to sink your teeth into this wonderful character. What's it like for you to have another season with this great character and storylines? Yeah, I'm really fortunate that she's taken such a transformative journey from season one because season one, she was the nemesis, the ultimate nemesis of our protagonist, Nikki. And in that, she was the one that was her role. She was playing, you know, in a very, as you said, homicidal kind of way. It's interesting. It's like, well, she's taken on these different characters throughout the seasons and in multiple characters throughout the seasons too. I mean, in season two, we saw her more, as they call it in a storyline, the trickster coming going between an ally and a nemesis and here and there really challenging Nikki to do certain things within the story. And that has been a lot of fun to play and understanding that. And that's just part of her transformative process that brought us up to season three, where season three, she's an ally now. And she's still trying to figure out and dismantle what it is that is her authentic self, I would say. And that's very in tune with like, I think in just human circumstances where when we have transformation and evolves falling away of things that, that we have relied upon. And she's relied on these certain methods and precision and tactics that we've seen in season one that she's really tried hard to get rid of through the progressions of season two and season three, through things that have happened to her in her past and her present that have come back to haunt her, that have made her reckon with how she was. Right. And it's really in that dynamic that I find incredibly fascinating from a psychological standpoint, because we see that happen over and over again in certain people's lives in my life as well. So that's been really fun to examine in a character that's so extreme. (laughs) (laughs) which I absolutely love, love. I really do just thank the writers for that, to give me that chance to do it. 
what's also been really great now that there has been such a, a great story arc for Jalan is she went from this completely laser precise, ruthless, homicidal assassin mm. to now she's sort of in this weird kind of awkward place where it opens the door for so much opportunity for humor and comic relief in some ways. And I've seen it punctuated over and over again. And I have to tell you, there's one shot of you that is absolutely fucking genius. You walk into Henry's apartment and you like make this face like you smelled, like you just walked into a locker room. <laughs> and do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's so great to be able to open up this whole new dimension that you can sort of play. So what's it like for you to kind of exercise your comedic chops as well? Oh, it's so much fun. And there, there's more to, of that to come, which, again, I'm so thankful that I get to play in those dynamics because, to be honest, I was like kind of jealous of it. <laughs> Jealous and also just like very like, oh, I'm so happy for you guys that you get to do that kind of stuff. But yeah, now I get to be in on it. And look, that was not her dynamic and was not really her place in season one at all. It just wasn't her role. And then season two and season three, she got to do a lot more of that. And that's natural with that kind of relationship. It's an awkward relationship. And they've kind of <laughs> taken on this like buddy cop thing, which I, it's so funny because on set, all the writers are like, did you ever think from season one that you would be in the Shen house or Henry's place and <laughs> you're going to be like joking about this kind of thing? I'm like, never. Yeah. And I'm so glad that it's come to that point and they're able to find a way to make that real mm -hmm. for her, like in a realistic way that can be bought by an audience. <laughs> so it's really fun for me to find those moments. And, you know, it's moment to moment because it's like, I remember doing that scene. I'm like, well, she's a woman who would have an opinion about this guy's place. And even though she's at this point, spoiler alert, holed up in a basement in a community center, sleeping on a cot, she's still not above judging somebody else's, <laughs> somebody else's living situation. So she would walk in and be like, oh, this place is a dump compared to Again, if for people who haven't seen the show, season one, she lived in this beautiful, beautiful penthouse yeah. that was like marble floors and like innately decorated. Yeah. And yet <laughs> she's still going to be coming in with some attitude. So it's a balance, right? It's a balance of not losing entirely what she was in season one, because there's a lot of things about her that just won't go away. That's very her and carrying that forward to this new way of being. So I think it's a spectacular job on your part, because I literally sat in my apartment and laughed. It was so good. <laughs> so I'm so thrilled and I can't wait to see more. Listen, this is your third appearance on. We've talked a lot about the first time you were on you about like a year and a half you were on the mm -hmm. show, like a year and a half ago was your yeah. first appearance something like that. You shared a lot of great stories at that point about you sort of really rolling the dice, uprooting everything that you had, because you started at a corporate financial job, a really great career that you loved, but obviously you loved acting a little bit more, but you really rolled the dice. And let me just preface this by saying, culturally speaking, us being Chinese, <laughs> there's a huge, huge expectation, culturally speaking, for us to do something secure and stable. And I'm just speaking for myself. You, you tell me, Yvonne. But for you to be able to navigate and manage, A, the want to honor your family's hopes for you and to not disappoint and to do well, culturally speaking, and also as a, as a daughter, right? But for you to actually roll the dice and even culture aside, that's a huge leap of faith. You packed up the car. It was a tough drive. You said you sobbed all the way there. And nothing was guaranteed, obviously. 
But here you are, and we're talking about you being on season three and doing this incredible character that you're doing so brilliantly. Can you talk a little bit about that journey from that drive to the time that we first talked about a year and a half ago, and most especially in the last year, year and a half, the growth that you've actually made? Because not to be weird, not that you're a homicidal maniac that I know of. No, character... <laughs> let's, let's make that clear. I am not. <laughs> Your character is marking a new chapter in her life and has to find a new way of doing things and being. In some weird ways, your personal life sort of parallels that a little because we've gotten to know each other a little bit. When you look back from being in that car with all that uncertainty to now, yeah, what do you think about like what the, what's that journey been like? And you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, we've had a lot of offline conversations about, you know, because we're good friends and we've had those conversations about like what my life has been like in the past year, year and a half. And there's been a lot of changes in my life and it's impacted my perception of self, the world and how to go after what I want and in my relationships and all of that. Kind of going back to the first point of being raised in a, I guess what we'll say, what most, I, I would say from my experience, from your experience, from what you've told me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and some friends of mine in a household with immigrant parents, with the messaging being, please go into something that's going to be stable, yes. that's going to give you a good life, that's going to help you gain a home, give you some kind of idea of like professionalism. I, I don't, you know what I mean? Stability. Yeah. yeah. You know, we have, we have that messaging. And I think I had to reframe what that messaging was. And in reflection of going back and being terrified of not going down that path, because I think a lot of the times when we hear about that and what's also told to us is like, well, what are those traditional careers? Those traditional careers would be what I did previously, which was do something in the financial sector, be an accountant, be you know a banker, whatever it may be, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a dentist, You know those things that traditionally would pay quite a bit that take a lot of work and are very admirable and put as high value in society for good reason, right? Mm -hmm. So the messaging though, when you shake it down from our parents, and I've had luckily the fortunate experience of being able to talk to my parents about this, because I think in a previous episode with you and I, I did mention that, you know, sometimes we just need to have these conversations to clear up any misunderstandings yeah. with our parents, because that messaging was so imprinted on us that we had to follow this path in order to have a successful, happy life that varying off from that path might lead in one that is not happy and successful. Mm -hmm. And in having that conversation, I said, well, I think what the messaging was and what I've confirmed it to be is that we want you to reach your potential. We want you to take life because life is hard and we want you to have a good life and we want you to reach your potential of a good life. And what does that look like? So that is what I think unconsciously has really driven me to make the choices I have. And choices are a funny thing. I've been thinking about this quite a bit because choices, well, one, choices are iterations of actions that happen over and over and over again. But the choices that you make have to have a buy-in of the people around you as well, don't they? In order for them to be yeah, somewhat I mean, fulfilled. It's harder. Without it's harder. It. It's harder without it. And it's not to say that it can't happen without a number of people, but it does make it a lot harder without them. And in the beginning, I didn't have the buy-in from that, but I did have the buy-in from myself. 
And that's the first one that you need. It's a personal buy-in of yourself, that personal belief of that potential that you, you could reach should you try to go for something else. It's a hard thing for me to really understand where exactly that came from, because I don't think it was one big moment. It wasn't one salient conversation or event that really pushed me to like pack up my car and come here in this journey of where I am now. It was a number of things, a number of those iterations that happened. In that journey, I think choices is such an interesting topic that I've been thinking about quite a bit because I'm wondering like where they've actually come from in my life and what actually drove me to make certain ones. But I do know that the first one that I did, I always had to have the buy-in for myself to say, okay, I know that I haven't really seen, it's changed, thankfully. I think we're seeing more of this. I know I haven't personally seen a lot of people that look like me on television. I haven't seen a lot of examples of it actually being done. Yeah, I have some examples, thankfully, in my family of people being in the arts, but it was, even from them, it was never something that it was encouraged for me to go into. Mm-hmm. So what actually made me make the choice to actually go in? And it was this inner voice that I had that said, you got to do this for yourself just to see if something's going to happen. And that inner voice is something that's actually been coming up quite a bit. And it's been talked about. I've thought about this. I've looked it up. I've uh, researched it. And it is something that's been talked about and researched quite a bit. That this inner voice, that this inner monologue that we have of driving us to certain aspirations that we may have for ourselves, but yet we silence them all the time. And I'm curious, like, did you ever have that of your own journey kind of coming from where you have been to all the way here to making this podcast. Uh, Wow. That's like a whole nother series right there. Mm. First and foremost, I think going back to what your point is about your first buy-in being yourself, I think that's also the hardest one probably. And I'll be honest with you. And I don't think this is going to surprise you anyway. One of the reasons why I created this podcast was because I wanted to take myself to task. I wasn't sure if I was any good or if I had any talent, even though I've been working in the business for 20 something years. I believe that you can just work hard and be stubborn and pigheaded. And I thought maybe that was what it was. I certainly own up to that. But in terms of buy-in, I don't know. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I started as an accounting major in college. I can't even fucking add. So I don't know. But I did it because I was scared of not getting a job and wanting to do something stable. And again, to your point, I didn't see anyone on screen that looked like us or even behind the scenes. And all I heard about were these horrible cutthroat stories about being in the entertainment industry. So for me, I was not good in school <laughs> the way you were. The way you were. I didn't like school the way you liked <laughs> liked it. I tried accounting. I got D's. And ultimately, I did not get the the initial support really from my parents. My mom was quote unquote supportive, but like she was terrified because I'm also the only daughter. And then my dad was like, I think I could have walked in and said I wanted to be a nun and that would have went over better. (laughs) For me, it was really like fear. And once I went into it, I did not have an option but to succeed in entertainment and media. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. 
Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And just really one quick side note. So I had Mike Bowe on the show, who's going to come up also. Yeah. You know, he played Simon Lau on Kung Fu and was awesome. He said something that was really interesting, and I wanted to point this out. I want you to know, Yvonne, like both personally and professionally, I think you sharing your talent has made a bigger impact than you actually realize on society. And what I mean by this is Mike and I were talking about the lack of representation. Obviously, everyone's been talking about it. But something that he actually was able to put language to that I did not realize at the time was, you know, obviously, I'm older than both of you. (laughs) I'm older than both of you guys. But when I was growing up, whatever little I did see of Asians in the media, it was a either a horrible, offensive caricature of like Mickey Rooney playing an Asian character in Breakfast of Tiffany's, or overall, they were the undesirable, awkward outcast of school or society. That's the image that I grew up with. And that's still something that I actually didn't realize had attached to my identity in person. So I still feel like, you know, I think I've said it many times, like just in conversation, like I'm a complete dork. Now, my point is seeing you and people like Mike and like the cast of Kung Fu and all those people, you just sharing your talents and being the bold person that you are to pursue your dreams has sort of changed that completely for the new Asian generations that's coming behind. You guys are contemporary, talented, gorgeous, smart. You're not the outlier undesirables that I saw and grew up with. And I think whether you know it or not, and this is really an epiphany that I had during my conversation with Mike, and it's really stayed with me, is that that identity will not attach to that entire generation that's watching you and your show because you're doing your thing. Whew. I'm never, I never really stop to think about it sometimes. I know what we're doing is important because it's something that I wish dearly that I had growing up as well. Um, but sometimes it's because we're so in the wheel of just trying to get stuff done that sometimes we'd fail 
to take stock of the difference that we can make, the positive difference that we can make. And we're always striving to do it. I'm not saying that it's not in the forefront of mind. It's very much so all the time because I think in how you conduct yourself, and I'm talking personally for myself, there's always this, and speaking to what you're talking about and, and not even just representation, but just doing the work itself. When you speak about like, oh, you've been doing this for so long and you know that you're good at it. I know that you're good at it. So many people know that you're good at it. Let me just say that because there, it, it gets to a point where it's just like, you're constantly trying to prove something to yourself, to other people that, that you deserve to be here. And it's a lot of it actually has to do more with the inner conversation that you have with yourself. And then on the other side of that matrix is trying to make a positive difference. And I could say that, you know, for myself and for Mike, he's so wonderful to work with. And I know he's always talking about like just positivity and trying to create something good. And he's so invested in what he does. But in this matrix of like trying to prove yourself versus trying to make a positive difference, if you look at it, it's kind of like a quadrant. And, you know, even in this just small talk, we both have had examples of this in the upper left-hand corner. I don't think this is us, but here's the four matrices of how I see this dynamic playing out. Mm -hmm. Some people have this tendency sometimes where they try to oversell themselves in order to get something done. And that could be somewhat tone deaf. And then in the bottom left-hand corner is like the letting go where it's not worth it quadrant. It's like, I'm not an expert at this. I don't know what I'm doing. And I fell in that trap many, many times before I actually took the action to come and do this, to move to Vancouver, to pursue what it is that I really like, trying to let it go because it's like, well, I don't see myself on camera. I don't have that example. Where do I even begin? So you just let it go. You don't even try. You don't prove it to yourself and you don't make a difference. And nobody wants to be in that quadrant. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the bottom right quadrant of making a positive difference, learning and proving yourself. And then you undersell yourself in that quadrant. So you could be making a really positive difference. And this is where you and I have had many conversations in, but this is the imposter syndrome, right? Right. I always feel like I have imposter syndrome because it's always like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not enough. There's a lot of self-doubt and what's happening. And this is where I think a lot of times I do personally get stuck is this underselling myself. And it's this talk that in a funny way does motivate me because then it motivates me to be in the quadrant where I always want to be. And that's in the upper right-hand quadrant. And that's earning credibility. Right. I'm trying to earn credibility of what I'm trying to do. I guess trying to understand and know what I'm good at and understanding how I'm perceived, but also at the same time, letting it go because I have to not have fear when I know that I have competency in what I'm doing. Okay. But that's a challenge though, right? That's the challenge. It's a very big challenge. Yes. But that's what I'm saying is like, well, that's what we're all trying or should be trying to work for is to let go of that fear when you know that you have competency. Right. And gaining that competency means gaining experience is in the doing of the things. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a very double-edged sword when sometimes you feel like the opportunities are far and few in between, especially in our industry. But going back to that, regardless of how many opportunities that you actually had, when you think about the value of the difference that it makes for other people, Mm -hmm. just because they're few doesn't mean that they're not big. I love that. And so if we can recalibrate what it is of why we're doing it, 
one, you're proving to yourself day in, day out that you could do it just in the sheer tenacity that we're still in this business is quite a big feat of itself, right? But then you get those one or two opportunities here and there. And like you said, it's not something I've done enough of, but in reflecting of what that difference actually makes. And then the value of that is very different. Okay. So where it may be only one or two for me, what does that look like in the actual value add of the overall picture? And isn't that recalibration that maybe I could look at that? That's a lot to think about. It's just in a recalibration of what I can look at. How did you learn how to recalibrate that though in that moment? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that. I'm not saying that this was easy for you. That's mm-hmm. please don't get me wrong, oh, you're yeah. human. But you were able to recalibrate. How were you able to do that, Yvonne? I'm still learning. <laughs> Look, I'm always oscillating between underselling and the imposter syndrome and then actually being able to say, no, I'm just trying to gain credibility with not just myself, but my peers and to be able to build and gain on those relationships so that it's healthy and actually makes a positive difference. If that's what my true aim is, Mm -hmm. a positive difference for everybody. I guess the one thing that I think about, I have a real love for what I do. I know you do too. Mm -hmm. And in understanding that love, there's a question in that decision of like, why do I keep coming back to this when there is there so much (laughs) strife in it sometimes, right? Well, would we do this for free? I mean, look, it's not that we should do it for free, but I <laughs> yeah, think there is an intrinsic... No, let, yeah. I mean, what we should know our value, and, but that's a whole nother conversation. But what I'm saying is yeah, there's intrinsic motivators that we all have that can be silenced, unfortunately, by extrinsic motivators. Yeah. And they blind us in certain things of taking us away from that pure love of what we're actually trying to do. Yeah. Let me speak a little bit about like in our modern times, for example, and this feeds into the self-doubt. Let's just talk about social media real quick, because that's like kind of the most glaringly obvious example of what we could talk about. Yeah. If you share a post or whatever, and for example, let's going back to that positive difference that you and Mike were talking about. Let's say that you share a post and it's about work or whatever. And your intention behind that really is to say, okay, it's taken a lot of hard work, but we're here. We can do this. Look at like this group of people sharing this really lovely moment on set or whatever it may be, right. whatever you're sharing, right? Then you put it out into universe for that purpose. Maybe it starts out that way. And then all of a sudden, these extrinsic motivators are saying, well, you got this many likes. You have this much engagement on it. You have whatever, this, this, and that. All of these things that are really there to distract and hijack your focus of what it is that you're actually are trying to accomplish. That's such a great word. It's designed that way. Yeah. That's such a great description. Hijack. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's dead on point. It really does though. It's hijacking it. And we're human. We all have an amygdala. This is what happens in our brains naturally yeah. that occur. It's a human process. And this happens to us. We get hijacked and then we we're taken away from that. And then we get all the self-doubt of, oh, well, this post didn't get enough engagement or this one, or I didn't get the reaction that I I was hoping for. But then you go back, well, I didn't even do that to begin with for that reason. I don't want this to sound corny, (laughs) but it is kind of. In the saying that like love conquers all, it's not about love overcoming all obstacles between you and the job, you and another person or whatever the relationship may be. But let me just talk about it in regards to our careers. I really love what I do, but love is what should bring us back to ourselves so that we can show up fuller, more conscientious, and more courageous for what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. 
So you got to remember what the why is and why you decided to do this to begin with and what that intrinsic motivators are. And it's always a recalibration of trying for me to filter out those extrinsic motivators that I'm going to say it again, hijack what it was I initially set out to do. That is kind of the recalibration process that I've been trying to put into practice, but it's not an easy one, like you said, obviously, because most of the time when that happens, when we get sidetracked, it happens in such a natural way that we don't really recognize it at the time until we actually take the time to sit down and say, what the hell just happened? I just got on my phone to send out an email and all of a sudden, an hour later, I don't, I didn't even send out that email. What happened? <laughs> yeah, same. I'm like, what the hell? So it's one of those <laughs> things that you, you, I, if you take it from an eagle eye view, then what are the processes and systems in place that you need to put into your life so that you can take back control. I always love the fact that you always do the work. And when I say that, I think it's it's sort of an overused term sometimes, doing the work. Mm-hmm. But I think you really take the time to recalibrate, check in with yourself, reflect, and to make adjustments because life is a moving target. Circumstances change, people change. I know that you are someone that checks in with yourself and checks in with your friends and reflects. So when you look back at yourself in the car where you were filled with um, all of this uncertainty, where are you today? Like, what's that journey been like? What have you learned? That's a big question. (laughs) What have I learned? I mean, I I guess, um, let me, I'm trying to break it down and what I'm thinking here. You have gone through a lot of growth. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. I think the most valuable thing, and I'm still learning, and maybe this goes back to trying to move away from Mm self-doubt and just trying to, to build something more of, of confidence and, and value add in a positive way to just not myself, but to the people around me is, man, this is a really d- tough one to break down because I think at the core of it, it's really listening to yourself mm-hmm. and silencing a lot of that self-doubt. Let me go back to the idea about choices for a sec, because what I do like in that too is, and w- what I was speaking to you about before is that intrinsic voice, right? That inner voice that you have. I wanted to act for a very long time growing up. It was this like little thing, this little nagging voice in my head that's like, you really like this and you you should do it. But then there's all these other external things that have happened that have had a lot of influence on me that said that I couldn't do it, whether it be relationships, whether it be what I'm seeing in the marketplace, whether it be other voices of a reasonability growing up when you're just formulating your own thoughts and ideas about the world, saying that maybe I couldn't do this. But I think that we do a lot of disservice to ourselves when we don't listen to that inner voice that draws you, that's trying to guide you towards a path or direction of what it is that you really want to achieve or what you want to add into this world. We override it so, so many times. And when I didn't override it that time, when I did actually finally decide to choose it, yeah, I did sob in my car for a long time. However, I think there was also this feeling of expansion. And we've talked about this before, but that feeling of expansion of like, well, does the inner voice actually match the body? Does your body also telling you to take action towards the direction of where you want to go? 
what I mean by expansion is like, let's think of an example here at maybe if you are willing, you know, to pitch in, but if there yeah. is a moment for you that you felt that, oh my God, I don't know if I should actually take this path or there's a job opportunity in front of you. I don't know if I should really go for it. In that decision-making process, was there ever a part of you, whether you were to say yes or no to something that immediately after you felt a kind of expansive force within your body saying like, yes, this is like a full body. Yes. That I think you should really go for this. I don't think I was as aware of myself back then. I think I was so instilled with fear of failure. So for me to be an only daughter of immigrant parents, I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to fail. Oh my God, I'm going to fail. So I almost had like sirens going through my head where I was just like, I couldn't fail. I couldn't fail. So I don't know if I had the expansion. I will say that when I got projects and things like that, I did feel, thinking back, I did feel a burst of positivity, but I think I was still so consumed by fear. Mm -hmm. And I would say that for me, it's true. Like that actually happened to me as well. Like I would have this overwhelming sense of this inner voice being like, you want to do this. And then the thought of doing that, just the thought of it made me feel like, yes, like kind of what you're yeah. saying, that excitement followed up immediately by fear. Yeah. And I think that fear is in that standard of what we've been ingratiated with mm -hmm. in that messaging of, I don't know if you can do this, is that self-doubt. Yeah. And that fear in that choice of actually doing something or not, that fear lives on both sides of that choice. It's that dilemma, right? Of what we're faced with. Do we stay with what's comfortable, what we know to be safe, or do we go after what the potentiality of our life could be, which is what we talked about before. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard thing to try to delineate between that fear and that expansion because that fear is a defense mechanism. Yeah, It's something that's trying to protect us from something that's unknown. But I guess what's important is that action is what's going to give us clarity. Action provides us with clarity. Yes. So it's not until we actually do something, do we actually know if the fear was warranted. Yes. And it doesn't have to be these huge leaps. I think this is also the issue that I have sometimes with the stories of how people get to where they are, they're going or where they are. And I would say that I think mine is very guilty of it as well, where I've talked about packing up my car and just moving to Vancouver. But there were so many things before that and in between that of moments in my life that I had to take small actions to understand that this was going to be a good choice for me or an okay choice for me that I could weather and survive and I'll get through it. You know, being in plays growing up, like I took these little steps and these little actions to give me that clarity for that moment mm -hmm. to pack up my car and leave. That, that moment was in itself, yeah, a bigger moment, but it wasn't the only one. We have to consider all of the little patterns that shape us before that. But what I guess what I'm saying is that fear is something that we have to be very careful of. We have to be careful what we're going to be scared of. Yeah. So are you going to be fearful of losing what you already have? Or are you going to be fearful of losing what you could have? And you don't know what you could have until you take the action to see what that actually looks like. So it could be small things. I don't like the messaging that you know, you have to do these huge grand gestures to figure out what it is that you actually want to accomplish and what you want to do. Just take the small ones. Put systems in place in your life every single day. If it's waking up every morning and you're interested in something, 
I don't know, read, just have a to-do list, a small to-do list, something that you can knock off every single day just to see if this is actually something that you want to do. Take a read of it. Just experiment with it. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I think we live too much in these like binary terms right now where it has to be a yes or an absolute no. It's like, why can't it live in a maybe? Why can't we have that gradient of decision-making? You know what I mean? Yeah. The more I reflect about, you know, in the questions of like, when I'm asked like, oh, what brought you here? I'm like, there's so many things. And it wasn't an absolute less. It wasn't an absolute no. There's so many things that lived in between that the whole binary decision code actually really bothers me (laughs) when I think about it. It's like, why can't we accept and allow people to live more within the middle? That's a good question. I will say that you're much better at that than I am. (laughs) You're much better at that than I am. I'm definitely sort of more black or white. I'm trying to be better at being gray. I think I'm much more understanding for other people to be in the gradient, but not necessarily for myself. I do think that you're 100% right. Every big move or whatever, change or chapter, it didn't just sort of come out of nowhere. (laughs) It's always a culmination or a totality of all these little iterations, whatever it may be or however it may manifest itself. But I do think that it is really incredible that you had this sort of self-awareness and ability to kind of clock these moments to say, oh, these are the things that sort of led me to this, even though it was still ultimately a huge move. I'm going to speak for myself here. I know people in my life that say, this is what I've always wanted to do and da 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 but there's no ability to execute. Mm. And it could be for a number of reasons. It could be self-doubt, fear, self-sabotage, whatever, for what it's worth, Yvonne. Again, and I'll go back to this for just a second, Regardless of who you are or what color you are or whatever, entertainment, the media industry, it's a wonderful industry. I love it. I've been super lucky that I've been able to have a career, but it is a tough industry. And for you to do what you did on a personal note as well as professionally, I think that's really badass. For you to have that heart and courage and self-awareness and resolve. And you didn't let your insecurities or your fear stop you. That is something that I hope you personally register and embrace about yourself. Well, thank you. I mean, this is my own personal thing. If I want to plan where I'm going, I need to know how I got here. True. And also there's just been a lot of stuff that happened in, you know, especially in the past couple of years of my life that really have made me contend with how I did get here and where I want to be. Mm-hmm. I think that unconsciously or not, it's become conscious now. Let me just say that in the decisions I've made okay. because I've had to reflect on them and to try to understand them because I wanted to figure out what has worked and what has not worked for me. And it's funny because like all art always kind of imitates life. And in the art of storytelling. There's this really great psychological thing called individuation Mm -hmm. that I I hope I don't muck this up, but individuation by Carl Jung. And it talks about when an individual does not become conscious of their inner contradictions, the world then pre-forces out that conflict. And it happens outside as fate, or we call it fate. And we say that it was inevitable, right? There's so many people I remember after I made this move, they're like, oh, we knew that you were going to do this. 
we knew like you were, it was going to happen for you. I'm like, really? Because I didn't. <laughs> but it's interesting in that in our contradictions, when we think about what it is that we want versus what it is that we've been told that we want, that's an inner contradiction of itself. And you're trying to work that out within yourself. There's so many moments too, when I reflect back that I did do things. And I think people do do things without even telling themselves or other people on an unconscious level of trying to act out who and reveal who they actually are and what they actually want without even knowing in their day-to-day life that only later when it becomes conscious, you're like, oh, it was meant to happen. Mm. I think we always end up making these choices for ourselves. At least I hope so. Mm -hmm. I think that inner voice can't always be silenced. And then there are certain things in our life that we attract that in this individuation process of becoming whole of an authentic self naturally seeks to emerge into the light of our consciousness. So I think it happened. Give me an example of that for you. Okay. An example of that. I remember that when I was working in finance, even though I wasn't in acting yet, I just always wanted to create something like always. So I went to art classes just on a whim thinking that like, oh, this would just be fun. Uh-huh. I started a couple businesses that were kind of more within the art sector with a couple colleagues of mine thinking it would just be fun. Like those little things, I, I was trying to work out my inner contradiction of what I was actually doing versus what I actually wanted to do. Right. And it wasn't actually taking the full step of what it is that I actually wanted to do, but I was making these choices thinking like, oh, it was meant to be because like I met this person. Oh, I just like walked by this building and it had one of those tearaway things for like a painting class. Why not? Right. But it's like, it's me acting out that inner contradiction of wanting to do something. And it was in those small iterations, again, just taking the action to actually just dive into what interested me right? to give me clarity into where I am now. It was all little baby steps. Yeah, but here's the thing. And again, recognizing what you wanted to do, if you're even able to do that, that's like huge. But also taking action. A lot of people stop at the action part. Mm. You know what I mean? For whatever reason, I hope you recognize that that does take a lot of courage to actually roll the dice. The courage is built in in steps. Yeah. Let's take like a very obvious example that I think everybody kind of reckons with on, almost on a daily basis. Okay. Let's just talk about like, for example, exercise, working out. We all know it's good for us, but sometimes for whatever reason, it's really hard to do it, right? Yeah. Some people really struggle with that. I know some people who do, and it's not an easy thing. And you wake up every day and you're like, do am I going to be judged? for going to the gym because I don't really know what I'm doing. Am I going to be judged when I take the step to do this? Mm-hmm. It's in the baby steps. I wish I remember who I, I read this about, but it was somebody who did ultra marathons. And I remember their story. They're like, I used to be severely overweight, tons of health problems. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if I could actually do this. And now they're like one of the most uh, motivational athletes and speakers of the world. But it starts with going down in one block, but going down that one block takes a lot of courage. And then you go down two and three and each and every single time it's going to feel scary because it's meaningful and you're doing something. Yeah, That feeling never goes away, but that courage of the one block, the two blocks, the three to a mile to 10 miles to a full on marathon takes steps. And again, why don't we value more of the iterations in the in-between? All we hear is that first block to a huge marathon, and that is a massive step. 
I, it, again, it's in that binary term. Lots of steps. Lots of steps. But I'm just using that as an example to say that. That's a good example. You're not born with courage. You learn it. You learn it through doing. Right. I think that's great. I hear a lot of people talk and I'm generalizing here. I would say, generally speaking, people talk a lot, but are not able to execute. So I think that they're two separate ball games completely. The fact that you have been able to do it and you've been able to replicate it, I think through even the last year mm. for you, Yvonne, is sort of a lesson that you've really applied within yourself in terms of the growth trajectory that you've had since the car to now being on a hit show. When you look back and reflect on it, do you understand the incredible journey and growth that you've made thus far? I mean, and hold it right there. Yeah, you'll have to wait for Yvonne's answer in part two, which is coming up next. Don't miss the conclusion of this fiercely intimate conversation. And later on, I will be sharing some behind the scenes stories about my time with this amazing talent and person. If you like this episode and want to support the series, please leave a review on Apple Podcast, Podchaser, or wherever you're listening. And don't forget to download, share, and subscribe to the series. And if you are so inclined, there is a tip jar on Good Pods if you want to make a donation. So let me know your thoughts. You can always reach me on the gram at repin underscore podcast. I always love hearing from you. Thank you, thank you to my amazing crew, Nelson Dinero Pinero and Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.